The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. So glad that you are here. You are here on what I believe is going to be a special day for us because what we're doing together today is really going to launch what we're doing together this year. That, that I think in some ways that, that this sermon today and this series that we're launching is setting the spiritual agenda for what God has in store for us in the year ahead. So I'm so glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, you can grab it and you can go to John chapter one. We're going to be looking at John chapter one this morning. But before we actually begin the sermon, I want to do just a little bit of family business with you. First of all, I just want to let you know, we came to you at the beginning of December and we said, we're asking God to move in the hearts of his people to provide for us, to finish the year strong financially and to, to move strongly into a new year. We're asking God to, to move in the hearts of his people and provide $1.5 million over the course of that last month of December. And I'm just here to tell you, God did it, y'all. So yes, I never cease to be amazed and what God does to provide for us. And I never cease to be amazed at you guys and your generosity, your faithfulness, and your participating in what God is doing, changing lives through the work of this body, this church family together. You are a part of seeing lives change both here and around the world, both for now and for eternity. And so thank you to all of you who participated in that and praise be to God for his abundant provision for us. The other thing that I wanna let you know about is we've been talking for months about um, the, the need for us to replace this PA system, our sound system that hangs above my head. And so late last year, we did the renovation to the stage to, in order to help make that possible. And then wanna just let you know that that's gonna be taking place over the next kind of three weeks, the installation of that. They'll begin with some uh, getting up there and kind of tearing some things out this week. We won't really be impacted next week when we gather. The following week, we'll just have a temporary sound system that's in place to get us through that week. So don't come that week thinking, is this what we've been waiting all this? time for. It's not. It's going to be a temporary system in two weeks. And then three weeks from today, the, the, the Lord willing, all of that new equipment is going to be installed. That again, is just an opportunity for us with an aging campus to make some improvements that really do help us to reach our community with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Because that's what we want to be about. Seeing the movement of God go forward one life at a time. So as we turn our attention to the scriptures, would you just join me for a word of prayer? Let's pray together. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for your incredible, abundant provision for us, your people. And Lord, we do pray that you would help us to steward well those resources entrusted to us for the sake of your kingdom work in the world, for the sake of life transformation, both in our community and around the globe. And thank you for the men and women, the families, the individuals that make up this church family at IBC for their faithfulness and generosity. And Lord, now as we launch into this new series, God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you draw us into this vision that you have for us for the year ahead and what it is that you have for each of us in terms of our participation in the work that you're doing in and through the life of this church family? We pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Recently, in a series of gatherings with IBC leaders, I told the story uh, of, of a day that happened here on this campus that literally marked our family's life 
forever. It was right outside these doors in, in the alcove, the room that's just out this way. We had gathered together to celebrate the completion of my PhD. I had successfully defended my PhD dissertation and I was now officially Dr. Jones. And uh, so we gathered a big crowd of people together for this celebration. My sister had found a, an old college professor of mine that she brought across the country to be the guest of honor at this celebration. It was, it was amazing, this party that we had. But we had a bunch of little kids. Our boys were little at the time, and so they were all playing right out here outside the alcove. They were running up and down that little ramp that's out here. And my son, Pearson, who was two years old at the time, he's now 18, a freshman in college, but he was two years old at the time. And Pearson was up at the top of that ramp and just began to run down the ramp. And he got to the bottom of the ramp and his toe caught on the edge of the, the ramp in his little sandals. And it catapulted him forward into those heavy wooden doors that hit him right across the middle of his forehead and split his forehead open. Um, I was alerted to it. I came running out. I'll never forget. I, I had a, a light green shirt on. I scooped up Pearson in my light green shirt. He just began to bleed all over that light green shirt. Um, and suddenly my focus went from the crowd of people that had gathered for the party to that one little life. I scooped him up in my arms and, and ran. My cousin had, had pulled up his car. We jumped in the car. He drove us up to Las Colinas. That, that we took him into the emergency room. They began to, to work on him. After it was over, they had done layers of stitches. The, one of the nurses asked, how many stitches did he get? And, and the doctor said, too many to count. And to this day, Pearson still has, a you can see, a light scar, the length of his forehead. It was a, it was a moment in the life of our family that, that literally marked us. Forever. But in that moment, the, the, the crowd sort of disappeared from my view because it was all about that one little life. I just think about that story when I read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus, who's constantly surrounded by crowds of people, and yet somehow in the midst of the crowds, Jesus always sees the individual. The, the, the focus of Jesus always comes down to that one little life. Jesus came to start a movement, and the movement has gone global. Today, a third of the world's population calls themselves Christian. The, the movement that Jesus came to bring is a global movement, and yet the movement began and goes forward one life at a time. And God has called us as a church into a big, bold vision. God is calling us, the people of Irving Bible Church, to become a multi-ethnic movement of missionary disciples formed in the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. And yet it's easy for us to live for the sake of the world in the abstract, right? To think about the world in the abstract, to, to love the world in the abstract, as a Christian ethicist, Oliver O'Donovan has put it, to love everybody in the world equally is in fact to love nobody very much. Right? We have a tendency to love the world in the abstract. When God has called us to love the world one life at a time, to serve the world one life at a time, to, to, to bring the gospel to the world one life at a time. 
And this series, as we begin 2024, is going to be an opportunity for us to look at some stories, the beginning of the Jesus movement, to see the way in which that movement began and goes forward one life at a time, and to cause all of us to consider who might be that one life that God would call me to pray for and invest in in 2024. And friends, if each and every one of us that calls IBC home took that seriously, if each and every one of us dedicated ourselves to pray for and invest in one life at a time, imagine the stories of life change that we could tell a year from now. That our focus for this year at Irving Bible Church is to bring gospel transformation to our diverse community, one life at a time. And this morning, I want to look with you at the origin story of this Jesus movement. I I want to look with you at the the moment the movement began. And we're going to see that the movement began one at a time. Look with me in John chapter one. John chapter one. Now, a little bit of context before we read the text here. Um, John, the book of John, is written by the apostle John, one of Jesus' best friends, one of Jesus' inner circle. He refers to himself throughout his story as the disciple that Jesus loved. He's one of Jesus' best friends. And it's interesting because John begins his story of Jesus saying, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And when he talks about the word, he's talking about Jesus. He's saying, my best friend. He was God. Imagine what it might take for you to be convinced that your best friend was God, right? So something had happened that, that it had changed John's life to, to the point that he came to believe, my best friend, he was God in the flesh. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then what John does is he, he begins to tell the story of John the Baptist. And, and interestingly enough, each of the biographers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, actually begin their story by talking about John the Baptist. And part of the reason for that is that John the Baptist is this transitionary figure who connects the story of Jesus back to the story of the Old Testament. To say the story that I'm about to tell you is the, 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 the continuation and in fact the culmination of this ancient story, of Israel's story. And so they begin by telling the story of John the Baptist. And we're going to pick up in this moment where the religious leaders have come down to the river where John the Baptist is baptizing people, calling them to turn away from their past, to turn away from their sins, to, to, to set their wayward hearts aright, to come back to God. And, uh, and the religious leaders have come to, to figure out what's going on with this John guy. And, and we're going to pick up the story in verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one that I meant when I said, a man will come after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that he is God's chosen one. John makes allusion here to what happened when he baptized Jesus and he saw this image of the the dove coming and resting on 
on Jesus. And, and, and so John begins, the, the whole story begins with John pointing to Jesus and says, look. There's a very famous painting of John the Baptist at the Eisenheim altar in uh, northeastern France. Uh, it was originally painted by Matthias Grunewald in the early 16th century to go into a monastery there in France. Uh, the Eisenheim altarpiece, famous painting, and I, I want to show it to you. Just notice a few things about it with you. First of all, uh, check out uh, that haircut. What do you think about that, right? Um, I think I had that haircut in the 1970s. Um, and who knew that John was, was a ginger, huh? I didn't know that, but, but the thing that I want you to notice, the, the main thing about this image of John the Baptist is the way Grunewald has painted this elongated finger. John is pointing to Jesus, because that's John's whole purpose. John is a pointer-outer. Look, look at Jesus. John's not about drawing attention to himself. He's merely pointing. And friends, I think we can be really intimidated sometimes by the task of evangelism, by the task of sharing the gospel with other people. When, it, when in fact, I, I think that the whole point is for us merely to be pointer-outers. Look at Jesus. Um, don't look at me. I love the way that Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, captures the task of evangelism with this wonderful little phrase. They say evangelism is presenting Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. Isn't that good? Like my, my job is just to be a pointer out. I, I, presenting Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. I, I don't have to persuade anybody. I don't have to argue anybody. I don't have to have all the right answers. I'm just a pointer outer. Presenting Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and leaving the results to God. I, I learned this lesson as a young minister in a really powerful way years ago when I had the opportunity, I was at that time involved in youth ministry and had the opportunity to speak at some, some youth camps and retreats across the state of Texas and the surrounding region. And so I got these opportunities to speak to uh, gymnasiums full of kids or auditoriums full of kids. And, and there was this one time that I showed up to speak at a youth camp that week and I had hundreds of kids gathered in that room. And I'll, I'll never forget that Thursday night. Th Thursday night, there was just something that happened. I had, I had prepared for this. I was preaching a message on the meaning of the cross. And I just, I felt like I had the message just dialed in. And I, and I just had this sense of surrendered to the Holy Spirit. And, and I remember just having this sense of like, I love doing this. Right? I'm up there and I'm talking to all these, this room full of kids and I mean, they're laughing when they're supposed to laugh and they're crying when they're supposed to cry. I just, I felt so like the wind of the spirit at my back. There's a, a famous old line from that movie, uh, Chariots of Fire. Eric Little, the missionary who's also an Olympic athlete in this moment where he says, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Ever had that kind of moment where you're just doing what you know God made you to do? And I was up there in that moment. I was preaching the meaning of the cross to hundreds of teenagers gathered in that room. Felt the wind of the spirit at my back. I got to the end of the message. This was one of those camps where they offer you a, an opportunity to come forward and respond at the end, to respond to an invitation. And so, I mean, I, I got right there and I brought this invitation to these kids and I walked off the stage. The worship began, band began to play. I just felt this gravity in that moment in the room. And not a kid 
moved. I mean, I was preaching my heart out about the meaning of the cross, the wind of the spirit at my back. I am doing what you made me to do and not a kid moved. And I'll never forget. I walked out after that service was over. I stood on a gravel road behind that auditorium and I just wept. What, what happened? What, what did I do? What did I fail to do? The next night I got up, I gave an okay talk. It was, it was nothing special. I don't really remember that talk. But I got to the end, offered the invitation, and kids just came flooding down the aisles. Dozens of kids came forward to trust in Jesus. And of course, I should have known there is a kind of sociology to youth camp. Right? That was Friday night, and yet I really do believe that the Spirit of God moved through a mediocre sermon by a preacher who just got up to do his job, presenting Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, leaving the results to God. And friends, that's not just a task for a preacher. It's your task and mine in our everyday lives. Presenting Jesus Christ. I don't have to win an argument. I don't have to persuade anybody. I don't have to have all the right answers. Presenting Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, leaving the results to God. I'm, I'm just a pointer outer. Look. And notice what John says. He says, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And of course, in that historical context, you gotta understand there's some resonances. When they hear Lamb of God, when he's pointed to Jesus, Jesus saying Lamb of God, there's a couple of resonances that would come immediately to their minds. One would actually be to go back to the book of Genesis when Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac. And, and, and Abraham didn't understand, God, why, why would you call me to sacrifice my son, my, my only son, the one whom I love, the one that you've promised me that you would provide and now he's here and you want me to sacrifice him? As Isaac and Abraham are walking up the hillside, Isaac looks around and says, Father, where, where's, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And Abraham, I have to imagine with tears in his eyes, binds his son and, and takes the knife and is prepared to plunge the knife into the heart of his son before God stops him and says, I am not that kind of God, just so you know. I am not the God who demands of you the sacrifice of your son. And what we come to find in the fullness of Revelation is he's the kind of God who is willing to sacrifice his son for us. And they look up and there's the ram caught in the thicket. The Lord has provided the lamb. And John says, pointing to Jesus, behold the Lamb of God. Of course, in addition to the Lamb that, that was there as the substitutionary sacrifice for Isaac in the story of Abraham, so too their minds would have gone to Passover, to the book of Exodus, this moment of deliverance for the people of Israel who were held in bondage in Egypt. You and I, we, we can ask each other, so tell me about when you were saved. And we might go back to a particular time, a particular place where we prayed a particular kind of prayer, a time in which we trusted in Jesus. But for the ancient people of Israel, you ask them, tell me when you were saved. They would say, that night in Egypt, when our parents woke us in the middle of the night, said, shh, come on, 
we're leaving now. Like this moment of the exodus of God's deliverance from his people, but the way the story goes, it, it involves the sacrifice of a lamb and the blood of the lamb painted over the doorpost as a symbol that, that this one is covered by the blood. This one is protected. And so in the minds of the original hearers, they'd have gone to the substitutionary sacrifice of the lamb that was slain by Abraham rather than his son Isaac. They, they would have thought about the lamb that was slain in the Exodus for the deliverance of God's people. The sacrifice for the sake of deliverance. John says, there he is. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I love the story that's told about the old English preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon is one of the great preachers of all time. He's beloved as the prince of preachers. And uh, God used him in powerful ways as he did what he was called to do, which is presenting Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. And the story is told of a time when Spurgeon showed up to preach to a new place, a new auditorium that he'd never preached before. Of course, in those days, they didn't do mic check like we do here every morning. Um, Spurgeon would go in the room and he'd want to get a sense of the acoustics of the room. And so Spurgeon came out onto the stage in this room and he stood on the edge of the stage and he looked one direction and he just said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he moved to a different part of the stage and declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he moved to a different part of the stage and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he walked off stage not knowing there was a guy in the rafters working on the room who heard that simple declaration of the gospel and trusted Jesus on the spot. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, presenting Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, leaving the results to God. That's what John does in the opening scene here. And then look what happens next in the story, verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you'll see. So they went and they saw where he was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. So this scene begins, it's the next day, and John sees Jesus again. He goes, behold, the Lamb of God. Now this encourages me as a preacher, I gotta tell you, because I repeat myself a lot. And sometimes I think you guys go, does he know he just said that? Right? I repeat myself a lot, but apparently I'm in good company because John the Baptist did it too. He sees Jesus and once again, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. And then there's two of John's disciples, two people who've showed up to say, we wanna be your followers. We wanna be with you and become like you and carry on your work in the world. And they hear John say, look, the Lamb of God. And they decide to turn and start following Jesus. And John doesn't go, no, 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 wait, 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 come back, come back. Hold on, we're with me, right? Because John's not interested in John movement. He's interested in, the Jesus movement. So these two go and they follow after Jesus. Jesus sees them and he turns and he says, 
what do you want? And I don't think, I mean, we don't really know emphasis and tone and all that. I don't think Jesus is going, what do you want? I think Jesus does what Jesus, I think, does a lot, which is to sort of look deeply in their soul and ask them a question that's got like 17 layers of meaning, right? What is it you want? It's a good question for all of us this morning on the first Sunday of 2024. What do you want? I, I, I've got some goals for the year. I, I want to lose a few pounds. I want to read a few books, right? I got some things that I would love to accomplish this year. But I think Jesus' question is deeper than that one, right? What do you you really want? What do you most deeply want? Do you want salvation? Do you want healing? Do you want transformation, Jesus is saying to them and to us? Do you want to be a a part of something that's much bigger than yourself, that that has the potential to literally change the world? Do you want a sense of meaning and purpose that nobody can ever take away from you, that that is enough, that it's so much that you're willing to, to lay down your life for it? What do you really want? And I love their response. Um, uh, uh, where, where are you staying? <laughs> right? it's, it's the beginning, the origin story of the Jesus movement, and yet they do what the disciples do time and time again. When Jesus asks a deep, penetrating question, they respond with just a, a dumb answer. Right? Where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and you will see. And could it be that Jesus actually means a couple of things by that, come and you will see. Come, come and you'll see where I'm staying, but come and see, and I'll show you what you really want. It says they went with him and they spent the rest of the day with him. John tells us it's four o'clock in the afternoon and we don't get timestamps all that often. So we sort of go, why do we get a timestamp here? I think part of it is just to say they spent the rest of the day and the evening just hanging out with Jesus. And it changed their life. Jesus gives them his time and attention and it changes them forever. And then the next scene, verse 40. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Something about that afternoon and evening that Andrew spent with Jesus persuaded him he's the one we've been waiting for. He is the Messiah, the the anointed one, the liberating king who was promised we found him. And so he goes to tell his brother Simon Peter. Now, the way that John tells the story here makes it very clear that his original readers understood that that Simon Peter is the the better known of these two brothers, right? There's Andrew and there's Simon Peter, and Andrew's identity is, is made clear in relation to his brother, Simon Peter. Simon Peter is the one who's more well known. He's the one who would go on to have a, a a, a prominent place of leadership, a, a big platform for ministry. He goes on to become the, the grand preacher. 
Um, and then there's Andrew, his brother. My sister, Amy, was a force of nature. She was four years older than me. And everywhere she went, she lit up a room. Everywhere she went, she made an impression. Everywhere she went, people knew who she was. And she just had this remarkable capacity, never in any kind of strong-handed way, but nobody could ever say no to Amy. Anything she asked, she sort of was able to make happen because she just had this remarkable capacity to like woo people. She was a force of nature. And so wherever I showed up, it was often with reference to her. Oh, you're Amy's brother. Sometimes I would show up and, and people weren't particularly impressed. Oh, you're Amy's brother? <laughs> and that's, that's Andrew in relation to Peter. Oh, you're Peter's brother. You're Peter's brother? Peter is the one who becomes the leader. Peter's the one who becomes the preacher. Peter's the one who gets the platform. Peter's the one who, who is such a central figure in the expansion of this Jesus movement. And yet there would be no Peter without Andrew. And your job, friends, isn't necessarily to be Peter. You, you don't need to be the leader, the, the preacher. You don't need to have the platform. You just need to do what Andrew did. And you can never know what the results might be. And what did Andrew do? I love the way that this story is told. Verse 42, I think, is the heart of it. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Brought him to Jesus. He didn't preach a sermon. He didn't gather a crowd. He didn't persuade anybody. He didn't have to have all the answers. All he did is he brought him to Jesus. Jesus does the rest. And the rest, as they say, is history. And what's really interesting about Andrew is that we don't know a lot about him. He doesn't show up that many times by name in the story. But when he does show up, you know what he's doing? Bringing people to Jesus. There's a story that's told a little bit later when Jesus is preaching and a huge crowd has gathered around and the crowd has been here for quite some time and they don't have the food to feed this whole crowd full of people. But there's a little boy who's got five loaves and two fish. And you know who finds him? Andrew. And you know what Andrew does? He brings him to Jesus. There's a story that's told a little bit later about some Greeks who, who come to Jesus and they have some questions. And, and this is getting really close to the pinnacle of the story, to, to the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And these, these Greeks, these outsiders, they come and they have these questions and they come to the disciples. And you know who they find? Andrew. And you know what he does? He brings them to Jesus. Friends, that's your job and mine. Bring them to Jesus. We don't see Andrew show up by name that often, but what he does, he's doing the same thing. He's bringing people to Jesus. Why? Because Andrew never saved anybody, but he knows Jesus can. Andrew never healed anybody, but he knows that Jesus can. 
Andrew never transformed anybody, but he knows that Jesus can. Friends, who in your life needs to be saved? Who in your life needs to be healed? Who in your life needs to be transformed? Your job is not to save them. It's not to heal them. It's not to transform them. What's your job? To bring them to Jesus. And the challenge for you and for me, for each and every one of us who calls Irving Bible Church home this year in 2024 is to say, who is that one life that God would call me to bring to Jesus in prayer? Asking him to bring gospel transformation. Do, do they need to be saved to come to faith in Jesus for the very first time? Do, do they need to be healed physically, emotionally, mentally? Do they need transformation in their life? Gospel transformation. Who is that person that you would say, I am committed to pray for this person, to, to bring them to Jesus in prayer? Some of you know that I spent 15 years of my ministry career as a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. And this year, 2024, DTS is celebrating their centennial, their 100th anniversary. And one of my favorite assignments that I used to get to do when I was a professor at DTS was to assign my students to read a, a book, an old book that was written by the founder of the seminary. Dallas Seminary was founded in 1924 by Lewis Sperry Chafer. And I would assign my students to read this book from Dr. Chafer called True Evangelism. And time after time, year after year, assignment after assignment, one of the insights from that book that, that so struck my students in, in a fresh and powerful way was when Dr. Chafer, a century ago, made the bold claim that true evangelism is more about pleading with God on behalf of people than it is pleading with people on behalf of God. Right? Think about that for a second. Dr. Chafer, who, whose work was the work of evangelism, said evangelism is more about pleading with God on behalf of people than it is pleading with people on behalf of God. That we would be people who are dedicated to pray for that person and say, God, would you help them recognize their need for salvation, for healing, for transformation? God, would you open their eyes to their need for a savior, for a healer, for a transformer? God, would you move in their hearts so that they feel it down deep in their bones? God, would you then help me to be watchful for that moment that you open up the door of opportunity? And God, would you give me the courage and the clarity to share my story at the right place in the right time? God, I'm pleading with you on their behalf. And when we do that, it's remarkable what God does in their life. True evangelism, Chafer says, is more about pleading with God on behalf of people than pleading with people on behalf of God. Because friends, your job was never to save anybody, to persuade anybody. Your job is to be a pointer outer. Presenting Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, leaving the results to God. So who is it for you this year that today you could commit to say, I'm gonna bring them to Jesus. I'm gonna lift them up in prayer, pleading with God on their behalf. Because I believe that this movement that Jesus came to bring 
this movement that Jesus has called us to be a part of moves forward in the world one life at a time. Let's pray together. And as we pray, I want to just acknowledge the reality that in this room this morning, you might be here and be that one life that somebody else in this room is praying for. You might be that person here this morning who needs salvation, who needs healing, who needs transformation. Hear this good news this morning. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus came into this world to be the sacrifice, to bring your rescue, your healing, your transformation. And he invites you today to trust in him, to surrender your life to him, to bring your burden to him, to watch him work. If that's you this morning, In a moment, we'll have the opportunity to respond. And would you come forward and allow one of the members of our prayer team to pray for you? But God, for all of us this morning, we pause just to acknowledge the reality to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world and not just the world in abstract, but my sin. Thank you. And out of gratitude for what you've done in our lives, God, may we be people who dedicate ourselves to pointing you out to other people bringing them to Jesus. And we pause in this moment of reflection and ask that you would stir in our hearts that one life, that, that one name, that one face. And God, we look forward with great anticipation to what you're gonna do in the year ahead. And now, Lord, we wanna just respond to your kindness, to your goodness, to your grace offered to us in the gospel. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.